Finding the right cleat can be transformative. Believe me, I've worn plenty during my career. So getting the right balance is crucial. The cleat needs to feel good on your foot, but also feel good connecting with the ball. The New Balance Furon 7 Plus is built with both of those points in mind, offering overall comfort and precise striking in the game's fastest moments. Because, as I learned the hard way, because I didn't possess much of it, speed matters in soccer. That's why the Furon 7 Plus is built for accuracy and precision at rapid pace and is engineered specifically for use on firm ground. Why is this the ideal cleat, I hear you ask? Well, not to get too scientific, but the Furon 7 Plus offers a lightweight yet supportive hypo-knit with mesh lining upper construction and is paired with offset lacing for a truer strike of the ball, which is a long way of me saying that your game will immediately get better when these are on your feet. Learn more and purchase the Furon at NewBalance.com. I'm Jimmy Cream Cheese, Conrad, alongside Hollywood Heath Pierce and Charlie Chuckwagon Davies. And today we're going to be joined by a former player who arguably scored the most important goal in U.S. men's national team history, Paul Caligiri. And for those that don't know what I'm talking about, here's some context. Back in 1989 in Trinidad, we needed to win to qualify for our first World Cup in 40 years. And this guy hits a bombasso with his left foot off the bounce from 25 yards to help us win 1-0. And we book our ticket. But more importantly, I believe it was the catalyst for everything that followed. Had we not qualified in 1990, we could go on to say that I'm not sure we would host the World Cup in 1994. And then would Major League Soccer start in 1996 like it did because that was a catalyst for the league starting domestically. And now I know there's a lot of what ifs here, of course. But what is not up for debate is that we're going to be talking to a living legend in National Soccer Hall of Famer. Before we bring him on, though, Charlie, do you think the guys from those 1990 World Cup teams and 1994 World Cup teams Get the respect and love that they deserve. I don't. I don't. It, and it's and, and and you can understand where they're coming from because they didn't have the resources that we have today. They didn't have the training facilities. And we've all, I think, can say we've touched a little bit of that. We've seen a little bit of that growing up. There's no professional league in this country. You had college soccer, then kind of what else? Even the level of college soccer, the level of coaching, what they had to sacrifice and do to get to those levels of competing in a world cup. It's, a, it's incredible. And I think we, we tend to kind of forget about those guys and, and it's, and, and, and someone like me who I love history, I'm a big fan of, of all of the, the players who came before me, you know, it, it crushes me when, I, when, you know, you talk to talk to certain guys and they're like, man, I, I'm forgotten. You know, they don't get these jobs of head coaches and technical directors and sporting directors it's almost like, ah, that was, that was then, this is now. So I'm glad that we get to talk to players that helped build soccer in this country. And, and no one more important than Paul Caligiri, Heath Pierce, because as I mentioned, the shot heard around the world that booked our ticket for the first World Cup in 40 years, pretty significant. Do you agree with me that how important that goal was and, and how big of a catalyst that was for us to have the growth in the country that we have? Because it sounds pretty dramatic, but I actually think there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, look... It, I equate it to what if the U.S. Uh, going into 2018 would have actually gotten the result that they should have gotten, right? When you think about the failure of not qualifying for 2018, that was the success of that goal and and bringing soccer to the forefront uh, for the first time in a long time, 
catapulting sort of what I think was just a, a, a groundswell movement of what we're seeing now is the growth of the sport. So in every way, not to say that the U.S. qualifying was was overly unexpected, but to have it come from a moment of brilliance, to have it come from something that goes down in history as probably one of the two uh, or three greatest moments in U.S. soccer history uh, is nothing short of, of unbelievable. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, likewise. So without further ado, it's time to bring on a man whose photo I had up in my room as a kid, which I cut out for my soccer mag- America magazine at the time. He stands five foot, 11 inches tall, weighing 174 pounds, played for UCLA, went in the national championship, just like me. Then he went to Germany for close to 10 years before coming to help grow MLS when it first got started, most notably with the LA Galaxy. And during this time, he accrued 110 caps to the U.S. men's national team, only scoring five goals. But man, those goals were super important. He played in two World Cups in 1990 and 1994. Then he went on to coach, which has him now coaching and being the technical director for Orange County FC and UPSL, where he's the technical director, as I just said that, and the director of the UPSL women. But most importantly, he's the only player in U.S. men's national team history to ever have his own Pert Plus commercial because his hair is just that glorious. It's the pride of Walnut High School. What's up, man? So my first question, great to see you as always. Which World Cup was cooler, 1990 or 1994? Man, I just want to go to a World Cup with you. This energy and Charlie Davies and Heath Pierce, you guys. I was a fan of all you guys. I mean, it's I'm a privilege to be here and honored. So, uh, hey, man, 94 World Cup changed everything, right? It brought the game to American soil, and it really exposed this sport to you know, sports fans, non-sports fans to a different level. And we haven't looked back since outside of that little glitch that uh, Mr. Heath mentioned a moment ago, but we won't count that. But, you know, like I said, man, I was a fan of all you guys and I'm a fan of the national team now. So go USA. Well, let's talk about the, you know, right off the bat, most famously, you had an incredible career, over 100 caps, you know, and and a club career that that spanned a number of of high level clubs, including you know, like Jimmy mentioned with MLS as well as in the Bundesliga. But let's talk about uh, that shot, right? We talk I, 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 everything in World Cup qualifying most of most of the time is a blur to me looking at the past. But you have a moment in history that will never be forgotten. Now, for people who maybe who haven't seen the video, it's available online. Uh, but it, for you. Uh, what was that moment like and, and and what is it like for you now to know that it's sort of carried on in history as one of the biggest moments in U.S. soccer history? Well, you guys understand that, you know, sometimes things happen in the game that are just so instinctive. But, um, you know, those instinctive moments, of course, are just bottled up with so much energy. And it could be frustration that you turned into a positive or whatever it may be. And I just put everything into that. I mean, the opportunity presented itself and, you know, instinctively I did what I had to do. Unfortunately, that ball went in the back of the goal. But mind you, we're still in the first half. So, you know, everyone had to perform in the second half. But I definitely had a feeling at halftime that the USA has got this. I mean, the team was just fired up at halftime in the locker room. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't come easy. I mean, Trinidad and Tobago was a very good squad at the time with Dwight York, who is one of the top um, center forwards playing for Man United and Russell Latipi. So we had our hands full, but certainly it was a big victory and a big moment for U.S. soccer, and we need to have more of those big moments. Well, Paul, I would say you're the perfect guest for the show because 
this current group, a lot of them are going into their first World Cup. And so like you in 1990, it's a, the first World Cup for, for all of you. And you're thinking, man, what, what was that experience like? And then knowing that on the back end, the following World Cup, it's coming to the States, similar to this group. Mm-hmm. They know a World Cup is coming to this group. And what did that 1990 World Cup do for you as a whole to allow you to have success in 1994? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we, we get to the World Cups, one thing, but playing in the World Cup is a whole different story. And, right. you know, a lot, of, a lot of things we learned along the way. But from a player standpoint, we get crushed in opening game. We lose five to one. We get a red card. And, you know, it's the bounce back effect. It's the American way. I mean, we're not satisfied. And, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say any loss is, is um, positive, but the takeaway of losing in the second game against Italy in Rome, you know, it's, it was a 1-0 victory on their, their part, but it was a close 1-0 victory where a goal was saved by Walter Zenga off the line, the closing minutes. It could have easily been 1-1. But at some stage, the Italian fans, 80,000, they were doing the wave that came from America. They had this USA feel. And I just felt we were, uh, we grew up that day and we were welcome into the world of football, you know, on that particular performance against Italy. And they appreciated that Americans can play this sport. And certainly it gave us a, a huge boost to, to form. And when you look at now, the ninety, the the two thousand eighteen team that didn't qualify, and these guys are going into the two thousand twenty two. I think they they carry a little bit of edge with them. I mean, they're frustrated at the fact they didn't qualify. Certainly, big time players that could have had a huge platform that could propel their careers even further. I think that is the American way too, where they're going to bounce back and they're going to come out hard. And I expect great things from this USA team come November. All right, we're speaking with National Soccer Hall of Famer and living legend Paul Calagiri. But before we ask him any more questions, we want to let everybody know that we're a nominee for the best podcast category in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. We appreciate everything that you guys do for us. And if you want to give us some love, help us put another trophy in our cabinet. We would love that because we didn't win as many as we would like. Go to podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up. Then toggle down the sports category, find in soccer we trust. Hit that. The link is in the description. The QR code is also in the corner on the YouTubes, and we appreciate that. All right, Mr. Paul Caligiri. So you had, as Heath has mentioned, and as I introduced you, you have had a, an incredible career. When you look at the development of the game in this particular country, and I know that you're actively involved with the UPSL, and that's where Orange County FC plays, and we're going to get into the, the nitty-gritty of what you're doing in a little bit, but what have you seen the most in terms of how fast – we have developed and how fast that that infrastructure has matured. Because I think that took a while. Even in early MLS, there was just nothing underneath it. I don't think people realized that when there was 10 teams in MLS, you had to make the 18-man roster, and that was it. There was no youth academy. There was no second team. There were no lower divisions. And that puts a lot of pressure, obviously. Good pressure in some capacity, but, but pressure in general that there wasn't a lot of spots. Now we have a system that's starting to grow and develop and and UPSL that you're working with is is part of that. I think a vital cog in in identifying players and passing them on. But what have you seen throughout your career that really maybe changed your mind that this sport is going to win a World Cup in my lifetime? I don't know if you believe that or not, but do you think that we will? And and where did you see you as a catalyst? Well, I believe that you are the best podcaster. You got my vote, number one. And I do do believe we'll see a a World Cup champion in the future with the USA on the men's side and Kudos to the women that continue to win world championships. Um, but I, I, I think that I, you know, like you and everyone else at this stage, 
we hear this in 10 years in the future, it's going to be like this. And, you know, I, I back myself up a little bit with the first initiative and uh, was project 40 project uh, 40. Right. Mm -hmm. And we put these things in 10 year increments and project 40 got us to a certain stage. And then you had this uh, next project called project 2010 that we're going to win the world cup in 2010. And then of course the, the birth and development, the U S soccer developmental Academy that, you know, uh, did it, what it needed to do to, to, pro to provide more opportunities, more platforms, more coaching, education, player education. And now you have a spinoff of MLS next and then MLS next pro, but certainly it's, it's about effort. Right. And uh, you know, these programs that were put in place is a, takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. And uh, it's all part of the incremental steps that we need to take to grow this sport. And certainly as Charlie mentioned earlier, you know, there's a, a slew of opportunities for players and development at this stage. And, you know, me working with the UPSL and I have a team that's in the final four. And of course, you know, focusing on, you know, the largest, most competitive semi-professional league in this country with over 400 teams. You know, how do we launch women's soccer in that platform? And certainly how do you get to a, a fall sport for women? Because everything was just geared towards in the past is just being simply, you know, a summer sport for college players. So, you know, being involved and immersed in it, I understand the effort and work it takes for these things to come to fruition. But certainly we have a lot of Americans out there, a lot of people that are dedicating their time and energy either on the youth sector or the semi-pro sector and ultimately also in the pro sector. So, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely grown. And sometimes we don't really see where that growth is and we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes and it's super exciting to know you know we get to see the final product you know we get to cheer on our pro teams we get to cheer on the national team programs and certainly uh this year's going to be a very exciting year at the tail end with the world cup coming around hey paul i, I got a question just about upsl in general what role do you think it plays in terms of fan building at a local level? You know, everything was everything for the longest time was like MLS or a comparison to MLS. MLS compared to the rest of the world. But how important is that sort of community-based uh, building of clubs? And then also uh, for player development. When I think about my own bit living and still, if I had grown up in Modesto even now, I'd still live outside the, the, the sort of umbrella of an MLS. LS club or an elite club. How important is, I guess, the fan building element of that as well as the player development aspect of UPSL? Yeah, that's a great question because the fan development could work in multiple facets, either partnerships with the local pro teams of how do you integrate it there. But obviously, a lot of these semi-pro teams would like to get fans to come support them in the community level. So you could compare it to like minor league baseball. How do they survive? Of course, they have certain fundings, but in certain markets, it does very, very well. And it goes in the same with us and other markets. But basically, it comes down to facilities, right? I mean, we, we've had a lot of uh, communities built throughout the country, and there hasn't been soccer fields or soccer complex planned. So, you know, how do you go back and, and build these soccer facilities or get these soccer-specific venues versus uh, renting high school fields with football lines? And, you know, the UPSL does a great job putting on an excellent product. And matter of fact, um, next week, the national finals will be played at the historic Crew Stadium. So you can see the commitment at that level. In terms of development, I mean, it's, it's easy. I mean, you could have players looking to get a second chance um, that have – try it out and make, try to make a pro team and didn't work out that kind of get that same high quality uh, competition. And then of course you have the younger players coming up. Um, it could be anywhere from uh, 
16 years old upward, and now they're integrated playing with higher level players. I mean, we see this and we know this is what's integrated in terms of MLS and MLS academies, but this is doing it in masses across the nation, giving more people opportunities, not narrowing the bottleneck, it's expanding it. And uh, we have players on my Orange County team at the age 16. Um, and at times I've had players come in at 15 to try to get the speed of play, the touch, the thinking, et cetera. And they get picked up by the LA Galaxy Academy or they get picked up by the LAFC Academy. And, and I feel like I'm doing my role, my job. But certainly we've seen the movement in the past year where we have several MLS U19 academies join our league. And they join our league specifically to give these 16, 17, 18-year-old players a, a, a higher level of play other than when they just play against their own MLS academies, which we all know is costly because they have to travel throughout the nation to do that. So they, they get huge benefits there. So UPSL is super unique in terms of where it fits in in the pyramid. And it, it, it's a higher level than college, but not quite the professional level. But I do believe there's teams and players out there that can compete against the professional teams. It's just a matter of resources and, you know, touches on the ball, hours of days you play, how many days you practice, et cetera. So uh, the UPSL has grown because it's affordable and it's literally got into corners of this country where for many, many years, U.S. soccer has focused on trying to get into these communities. So certainly it's inspiring to be part of the UPSL. And my particular role is super challenging because I'm trying to build the women's game and give them equal opportunities. Can you give some of these listeners perspective on what it was like for you growing up uh, and playing the game and, and the different types of players and styles and, and the technique? And maybe there, there wasn't too much of a difference between you know, player one and player two. Whereas now, as you see these young kids coming through and there's a lot more different types of players and different types of ethnicities and, and taking skills from, you know, whether it's Europe or South America or African, and you could kind of see the differences and how that's kind of infused with the youth nowadays. Can, can you shed some light on that for, for some of the listeners so that they have an idea of what that what It's that It's amazing you ask that question because you really get into a uh, you know, literally a segment you could cover, if not a few series, because, you know, throughout this country, now that I've been involved with the UPSL, you know, I'm in touch with maybe 35 different states, different cities in different states are differently. So if you're in Miami, it's a little different de demographics than if in Jacksonville, you know, but certainly in California, you have a large Hispanic community, but, um, and maybe in certain parts you have a country, you have different types of communities, but, um, it's fascinating because you bring up a bigger, larger topic of the style of play, like the influences. How does it influence you growing up as a player? And of course, then how do we, on a bigger scale, find the American system, find the American way, find our talent? And I think that MLS academies, of course, and the, the leagues are doing a great job of kind of circumventing that as a player's springboard in the national programs. Um, but my influences, I, I, I kind of was just a goal-scoring machine, believe it or not. Um, but respect, I did, respect. Right. <laughs> but I loved you, man. I mean, you're a great player, so you're exciting. Um, but I actually, uh, you know, didn't look back. I just wanted to play the game and look for different ways to play it. So, you know, certain, certain things changed. But I found myself in an under-23 system the day I turned 16 where I got my driver's license. I saved money up 
working a part-time job at a pizza place, being a dishwasher. I mean, you know, getting a ride from a friend, riding my skateboard back from his house to my home just to save the gas money. And once I got that gas money and I shared a car with the family to get to the U23 practice, I sat on the sideline until I got on that field and tell the coach, said, hey, are you just a kid in the neighborhood? And I said, no, I live in Diamond Bar, California, because that's a long ways from here. And I go, he goes, what are you doing here? And I thought to myself, like, coach, isn't it obvious? I mean, right. <laughs> I'm the only one here other than your players. And finally, I got to play and practice, and I made the team. I sat the bench. I got the courtesy 10 minutes. Next thing you know, I'm starting the second half. And, you know, next thing you know, I got the UCLA coach because there's UCLA players saying there's this kid that's 16 years old. He's playing for our U23 team. You got to take a look at him. But I was just focused and focused every day on my own. I didn't have these resources. So if it's uh, the hottest part of the day, I'm out running. I'm jogging. I'm finding those hills, you know, whatever it's going to do to mentally you know, stimulate my brain of doing something, I'm going to do it. I put that extra work in and you hear that. I could ask you, I could ask Jimmy, I could ask Heath. And that is kind of the connecting tissue that makes us unique in terms of how did you get there? It's the extra work, you know, is it, you know, visually practicing your autograph because you want to be a pro someday when you're 13 years old and dreaming all the way to sit there and putting the extra work in that you need to do with touches or fitness or whatever it may be. But I did get my break um, somehow, and I found myself at Hertha Zellendorf at 15 years old. I did a semester in a bit um, my freshman year in high school, and once I got exposed to the international game and the German Bundesliga, I said, that's where I want to be, and I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. There wasn't really a clear path, but I just believed I could. And at 18 years old, the unique thing is because – Apparently, I coached Jimmy, and that's what made him a great player. <laughs> take, take full credit, Paul. Take turn, full credit. Turn you loose, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I um, went to one of those ODP, Olympic Developmental Program, tryouts. But it wasn't a tryout. It was invited with 36 players. And I actually kind of snuck in there because I knew that two of my teammates were invited. And they had to narrow the squad down to 18 players, right? And I was in line, and then I – told the ladies at the check-in that my name wasn't on the list. I could sign it. I'm, I just turned 18 a week ago, the liability form. And eventually they needed a defender. And I didn't never played one minute in my life defender. And literally they let me practice and play. I made the state team and I eventually made the, or what is the U20 national team as the captain. And that's where I spent 15 straight years of my career devoted to the U.S. national team programs. And that was a long journey because every one of you guys know that the difference of playing on your national team and be it the 15s, 17s, the 20s, the Olympic team, it doesn't go based on your contract length. It goes based on how you perform that day. Yep. And uh, I went through a lot of coaches, so it was a matter of just uh, proving myself every day. And, yeah, there's players that came in and came left, and you're always battling for your position but trying to find the cohesion cohesion with your teammates to be successful on the field. So that was a big segment of my life. And I'm so grateful that I had this experiences I have. And certainly, you know, today with all the option opportunities and resources, I think it still comes down to how the team comes together as one. And of course the, the energy they have when they step on the field of that, the, the desire, the devotion, the will to win, you know, and I think we could all look back. It's like, go play 
5 e2 and you're trying to win 5 e2 it's go <laughs> go for go for a jog you're going to be the fastest one to jog whatever it is ball juggling i'm going to score the most and those are the players you want ultimately to be on the field for you the guys that want to win no matter what be it practice or be in the games well, Paul, I'm glad you're here because you're reinforcing a lot of the themes that we talk about uh, ad nauseum. And, and a lot of the things, too, that we discuss when we're talking about player development is that everybody's looking for a shortcut. And the, the, short, the, the trick is there are no shortcuts. You can't skip any steps. And it seems like you had a very similar path to, to Heath and, and Charlie and myself and, and amongst any other players that got to the pro level, national team level. There's always, that, as you said, that connective tissue that keeps it all together. So I kind of got two questions here. One. You played in the, I think, a 1986 UNICEF FIFA All-Star game. You were the lone American representative. Diego Maradona was out there. Platini oh, wow. was out there. I want to hear a little bit more about that and and uh, and and just you finding yourself on that field with all those big, big names and and how you handled yourself and how do you maintain your confidence, you know, despite knowing that these guys were were living legends themselves. And then kind of just to go off of what you just said. How difficult is it for you to coach? Because I run into it sometimes too when I when I coach at the USL League Two level, where I I have a tough time relating to the players that don't have that same mentality, haven't established those habits and, and disciplines and beliefs that they that they they say they want to be pros, but they're not doing any of the actions to back that up. Every, so I kind of had to every single thing that they they have to to do it right. Like not, they're not yeah, right. giving a hundred percent effort. It's, it's crazy to me. Oh, yeah, I want to be a pro. And then they don't show for practice. And when they're at practice, I'm not trying to win the 5v2s. They're not trying mm -hmm. to win. the. It's just like it's too casual for me. So I kind of wanted to know what you did to, to try to relate to those players who are obviously gifted and talented, but but maybe lack a little bit of that that professional discipline or professionalism to, to get to that next level. So for the many young viewers, fans listening and watching, um, in 86, I believe Diego Maradona was the best player ever. And to find myself, you know, on the same team as him was like, what's going on? <laughs> so the game was played at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Yeah. And because it was played on American soil, U.S. Soccer Federation begged, scratched and clawed to get an American representative into that game. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone knows that, you know, we didn't have a team in the 86 World Cup in Mexico. So this is an all star team. This is you know, basically Europe versus the rest of the world. And here we are playing an all-star game. So why is an American player going to be a token player to be in there? But I was probably so eager and naive looking for any chance. I didn't really pass my pass through my head, but certainly, you know, standing with the Brazilians and the Argentines and, you know, Bora Milutinovic, who ultimately became our 94 World Cup coach, was the assistant coach. And, um, you know, it's an interesting story because you ask because I'm a token player, but as the game's going, you know, it's 2-0 for the other team. And it's I'm looking, there's like 20 minutes, 30 minutes left in the game. And I'm literally at the end of the bench by the water cooler, leaning back, looking at Bora, like putting my hands like, hey, dude, what about me? Yeah. What about me? <laughs> you know, and I literally want to go on the field because I want to make a difference. And I, I'm no good sitting on the bench. So I forgot about the 90,000 fans. I forgot about it. It's a world all-star game. I didn't care if Martinona was there. It's my team, right? And it goes back kind of in in lines of what we've been talking about. So ultimately, I got on the pitch. And one sidebar I want to say is Diego Maradona shows up for the game. He doesn't show up for the day before the dinner or whatever it is. He shows up for the game. And the respect the players had was amazing. And his locker was right next to my locker. And now... <laughs> 
don't shake, act cool, you know, don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no big deal. But after the game, right, I had to wait a minimal of an hour in the locker room just to get to my clothes. <laughs> I mean, he was swamped by the media, rightfully so. And um, I just sat back and said, this is a world I want to be in with the mm-hmm. friendships of the players, to the unity, to the, you know, this ball unifies all of us, you know? Did um, you connect with it? Did you connect with anybody? Like, do you have any conversations or, or take anyone? I don't even know if they had phone. Yeah. Right? So I sat at dinner with Beth and Bauer. <laughs> you remember Falcao, if that's a name from the blast in the past? Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. Course. So he, he, he was Dr. Falcao and, you know, you had Hugo Sanchez from Mexico, but these guys took interest in the American game. They were so curious about the development of the game. Where is it going? And mind you, we had the heydays were in the late seventies, early eighties, and then the league got defunct and then we we're left with a blank slate there for a while. So, um, you know, I, I'd imagine today, but Diego Maradona showed up to my hundredth cap and we were playing in the 95 Copa America down in Uruguay. Mm-hmm. And we were playing against Argentina, which we at that stage we had never beaten before. So I'm playing literally on the border to Argentina with all Argentines fan, my hundredth cap, a big to do thing. All the Uruguayan fans that were supporting us up to that stage had bailed out. I mean, it was all Argentine fans. But um, Joe Max Moore, Kobe Jones, and Eric Winaldo lit it up, and we won 3 0. I mean, I, I can't have a better flashback in my career than my oh, heart. No. That's amazing. After the game, you know, we get this message like someone wants to see you up in the press box, Paul. And I'm thinking like, well, whatever. Who's up in the press box, right? And, um, you know, we shower, you do whatever you got to do. And then you finally make it up there. And Marcelo Balboa is begging to go with me, right? And I'm going, why does Marcelo want to go so bad up there to me? <laughs> you know, this is weird. I thought it was a delegation person. No offense to those delegates out there listening, but you know, I, I just want to get in the get get out of there, get to the hotel, and enjoy the victory. It's Diego Maradona. So this guy <laughs> remembered me from 1986 and all the way to my hundredth cap in '95. Yeah, it's Argentina, Argentina versus USA. It's close to the border. It's convenient. But dude, what an honor, man! Wow, I mean, that's man, amazing. So, I so got, your pen, so you were pen pals. You were pen pals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a fan of his. Yeah. I was a fan. Yeah. So then, going back that. to you know uh, what you had mentioned about um, the attitude, I guess the segue is to the players at this level. How do you coach them? How do you motivate? How to inspire them if they don't have the winning attitude? You know, I think the competition, the winning attitude. When you talk about 100%, every one of us could say, well, what does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. literally, because if you're striving for 100%, which we all did to get to where we got to, to represent our country, play professionally, where does that 100% end? It doesn't end. It doesn't end until you hang up the boots, right? So you're striving and driving for this 100% all the time, but which you don't have, there's no ceiling to that. So when we start coaching at this level and there's players bitter that it happened to them or whatever, you have to believe in second and sometimes third chances. And that's kind of what I've learned at this level with these players. They're human beings and, you know, we're dealing with their passion and their love for the game. And if I could just kind of steer them in the right direction of what that means and take their heart and mind and blend it together, then I've made some improvements. So, you know, I, I think I've done a good job in the past few years because my team has been, successful um, playing in the U.S. Open Cup, reaching the fourth round, knocking out a couple of teams along the way that are professional level, 
to getting to the final UPSL finals, which is the final four in Columbus out of 400 teams. It's a, it's consistent, you know, from the past four years of the levels we reach. So I do believe in second and third chances. And I can't even begin to tell you, you know, how patient you got to be or frustrated and, um, you know, dealing with these young, young uh, adults lives. Right. Well, I'll I'll tell you one thing, Paul, you had the, the ultimate flex in history on this show Jimmy loves to flex. Heath loves to flex. <laughs> you just tell. said Diego Maradona came to your 100th cap game <laughs> and waited for you after the game. That's the biggest flex of all, all, time. all time. All time. You, t- you tell that to mm-hmm. any youth player, oh, they won't need a third chance. They, they, <laughs> right, right, right. They don't get you know, a third chance. You know, they won't need a third chance. A second chance right? right there. I'll yeah. send Jimmy a picture, huh? Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, there's no room on your Hall of, Hall of Fame wall there, man. You I mean, know what? I'll, I'll make room for that, Paul. I'll make room for that. There you go. Hey, Paul, when you were when you were a young guy uh, dreaming about making it as a professional soccer player, and it's something that I, I, I like to talk about with the different generations of players, of now we have this young crop of players that are are probably equally, you go back to 2018, equally club and country, right? And that's a generational shift. When I grew up, it was like ODP. All I knew of was like national team Olympics. And then we had Fox Sports World where you had like some games on, like the 30-minute games, whatever like that. But I never really dreamed. Growing up, I didn't have a club or players necessarily that I looked up to other than MLS, the U.S. national team guys and things like that. I used to try to do my hair like Kobe Jones, which turns out not, not supposed to do that. Um, and, <laughs> but I was a kid and I, and I looked up to him and I really wanted to be him. Well, for you, what, what was your dream when you were a kid? Was it the national team? Was it ODP? I mean, what was your ecosystem that allowed you to, to strive for something? Because you talk about Maradona, but when I was young, I knew of him, but I didn't have access to him like kids have now. You can watch anything, see everything. What was the motivator? What were your dreams that got you to where, to where you eventually were successful? I think the biggest moment I could reflect back onto was when I was around 11, 12 years old, and I went to... LA Aztecs versus the New York Cosmos game. And outside the Rose Bowl, they had this um, uh, event where you could shoot and score. And if you score enough, you're going to get selected to be a ball boy. And I was so intrigued by that. The guy basically told me like, hey, kid, don't come back anymore. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you're already a ball boy. Because I kept going (laughs) back to the line, doing it again, back to the line, doing it again. And uh, the reason why I wanted to be a ball boy is because I wanted to be close to the action on the field so I could hear the players. Even if your first row, a few rows up, you have this sense of what are they saying? What are they talking? I realized the speed of play was phenomenal when you're down at the field level. And I heard them speaking multiple languages and it makes sense to me. And then that kind of, you're getting, I'm getting to the, what inspired me the most. It was the fact that there was only one or two courtesy American players. That was the rule. You had to have an American player on the field out of 11 players. And I, and I was young, but I went back going, why is that, right? And then my goal and dream was always to improve and change American soccer forever. Let the world show the world that Americans can play this game. And, um, you know, that, nothing was scripted from that point on. It was just that's what drove me. That was my dream. And then, of course, when I got exposed, you know, going on a trip, to overseas, to Norway, playing in a tournament and 
you know, another few weeks down in Germany with the youth club that I had, um, I got asked to return and go back there for seven months. And I did so. Um, then I never looked back. I mean, I'm 14, 15 years old being exposed to the international game and the level that was there. Um, these, this is the day of no internet, no cell phones. So homesick set, set in real quick, but I committed to the seven months and, um, you know, I, I came back home and I had to figure out my pathway and it all worked out going to UCLA and then, you know, signing in Germany and coming back for the MLS. So it's been a great journey. Well, you, you touched on MLS. You were there from, from the very beginning. You look at it now. Are you shocked or surprised? Because now it seems like we're almost getting to a level where, you know, Premier League players aren't necessarily on the top, the big six. They're looking at MLS. You know, Gareth Bale is a, is a, is a perfect example of a player who's at the top of the top, mountaintop. Real Madrid has, has being regarded as one of the best players in the world has a number of clubs interested in him and he chooses MLS and LAFC. When you see that, um, what, what does that mean to you that you helped build this league? And, and what were some of those bright moments when you look back at your time in MLS? Well, I'm in awe. I mean, I, I look at number one, the soccer stadiums are soccer specific. And then of course they're packed. Um, and you have fans have, uh, you know, everything from tattoos on their arms supporting mm-hmm. their local team to the flag waving. But that that alone, just the enthusiasm of the fans and the excitement, it, it gives you, you know, goosebumps. I mean, it's phenomenal. So I love seeing that. And uh, certainly I, I, I feel that I had a, a contribution into it. But there's a lot of hard work that goes into that with all the planning and details and the financial investments and I just hope we could continue to grow this game. You know, I, one of the things I see and I've been able to, you know, I, I coached in the college. I, I had a youth club. I did the whole U.S. Soccer Developmental Academy. And, you know, kind of like this is my final spoke in the wheel when I'm focusing on the semi-pro level. And I was on the board of directors. So the kind of this roundabout education since my retirement, I see that, you know, is it a, uh, a plan that the actual pro team or the actual U19s, the U17s, the academy teams are simulating how the pro teams play. And the easiest way I could give that is there's no disruption in terms of the Bundesliga. You know, you're playing in their academy structure. You're being groomed for their, you know, reserve level up to their first team. And it's very similar system. You know, take the uh, the Dutch system that everyone talks about. It's 4-3-3. It's very, it's very similar. But when I look at these academies and they're great players and great structure and they're going through all the, the rigorous of, of education development. But sometimes I watch the, the games at the end of the day at the pro level, Major League Soccer, and I don't see necessarily those teams representing or resembling or vice versa. The U19 Academy resembling how they play on the field for MLS. But then you got to ask yourself, is that all important? Because you stick a guy like a Messi on the field, everything changes in terms of tactics. I mean, what position does he play? Does he play the right, left, middle? So um, I just think about those integral things of where this game's going to go in terms of development, but certainly it has captured the fan base. And that's the most important thing. And I think it had a lot to do with identification with these stadiums. Now, I want to start or end our conversation with some thank yous. First, thank you for your time, Paul Caligiri. Uh, Second, thank you for everything that you've done to actually give me, Charlie, and Heath 
the possibility of playing domestically, whether you want to accept that responsibility or not. We're going to give it to you. We're going to bestow that honor upon you for everything that you've done. You've been uh, influential and impactful to the growth of the game in this country. And then also a big thank you for your continued influence. There are some guys that I think want to give back, but don't always know how to give back once their careers are over. So we thank you for everything that you're doing, especially at to the UPS, UPSL level and, and trying to inspire the next generation to be better than we ever were. So that is awesome. And it's been a big thrill for, for all of us to, to have you on. Last question, though. This is part of the tradition when we have any guests on that, that have played. What is the best jersey swap that you ever made during your career? And since you've already done the ultimate flex of having Diego Maradona be at your 100th cap, I don't know if you, you could don't, maybe tell Don't you that. dare tell me you have a Maradona uh, did you, did, jersey. Like, who's, your, who's the <laughs> be best jersey you've ever swapped with in your career? You know, as my last year, I went around trying to get guys that I played with their jerseys. And I think those are most precious to me. You know, my former teammates, national team. So be it a, a New England Revolution jersey from Alexi Laws, a Kobe Jones jersey, a Marcelo Balboja, whatever it may be. I mean, these guys are the old school guys. I love it. But on that note, I want to say thank you to you, Jimmy, and Charlie, and Heath. You guys continue to build the game in different ways. You guys are exciting to watch, and you guys had a big part in this growth as well. So I appreciate those kudos and kudos back. Paul Caligiri, anytime you want to play Cater Egos, you're welcome to come on the show. Absolute legend, everybody. Give it legend. up for Paul Caligiri. Make sure you watch the UPSL Final Four. It's happening August 5th and August 7th in Columbus. It's at the UPSL YouTube page. And we have Orange County FC taking on Dodge City Toros in one semifinal and Queensboro FC taking on Beeman United in the other. We wish you the very best, Paul Caligiri. We hope you come back champions from that competition. Thank you so much, you guys. Take care. There Thank he you. is, Paul Caligiri, everybody. Yeah, we're going to take our first and only break of In Soccer We Trust when we come back. We're going to break down that interview from the man, the myth, the legend, Paul Caligiri. Don't go anywhere. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to In Soccer We Trust. I'm Jimmy Conrad alongside Charlie Davies and Heath Pierce. And we are going to discuss the Open Cup semifinals. It's done. It's dusted. The final on September 7th is going to be between Orlando City and Sac Republic. Ooh, I was wrong. I was way to off. Get, to get to a final <laughs> since 2008. So that is very, very exciting. And of course, we're going to have to kind of recap that interview. Uh, Heath, I'll start with you. Amazing to hear from Paul Caligiri and just his insight and his drive as a player and how that's inspired him to keep those same habits and disciplines into his second career as a coach and, and mentor for the next generation. Yeah, it's it's interesting because yeah, I, I, I for me there's I'm and I'm I'm generalizing uh, uh, generations a little bit, but there there's just a level of 
gratitude that he has for the game and what the game's given him and the opportunities that he has and, and the impact that he's now able to have on the next generation that I find really refreshing. I, uh, so often there is very much a, and we all go through it when you retire of like, no, the game owes me for what I did for the game. Right. Mm -hmm, First. Mm -hmm. And then you go through this process of like, where do I find my place? And then you quickly realize that the, the game doesn't love you probably as much as you loved it back at a certain time. And you got to figure out where you fit in, whether that's in broadcast coaching, front office, whatever, there's a million jobs in the sport now, uh, uh you know, by a large part from, from the people that laid, laid the foundation. But for me, that gratitude that he has, it was just continuous. I was just sort of at first kind of like, is he, is he playing the game a little bit, doing a little bit of a PR, like, you know, but he just has this general love for what the game has, has, has provided him and, a, and, and a gratitude for what he's been given and, his ability to give it back that I find more rare than anything. Uh, and, and yeah, just to hear his tone towards everything was just really great. And to have more people like that, we talk about coaching education, the future of the sport, more people that leave the game and come back with that type of attitude of, Hey, it gave me everything. Now I need to instill this on the next generation, the way better off we're going to be, as opposed to being like the game should be thankful that I'm, if, if I have any part to do with it once I retire. No, that's, that's a, a great response to, to my question. And, it makes me wish we had more time to speak with him because I feel like he's got so much to offer and so much insight that if we got into the specifics of some of the things we were asking. I think it would be a fun adventure to, to go on with him. Charlie, anything stand out for you in that interview with Mr. <clears throat> Paul Calgary? Well, outside of uh, the hard work and determination just to get his foot in the door, and I, I, you, you touched on it, Jimmy, sometimes you're just like, where's that fire? Are you doing absolute everything in your power to make things happen? Are you giving yourself the best possible chance at a successful professional career? And, you know, if you have to ask that question, then you know the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And so a guy like Paul Caligiuri who can say, hey, I used to have to skateboard, you know, four miles to a friend's house and then, you know, hitch rides. You know, we, we hear those stories in and out um, from different athletes at certain points of of their career. But I mean, this is a guy who really had to like grind to get an opportunity because soccer just wasn't big in this country and, and there were no resources. There were no academies or no, there were no MLS clubs. So it's incredible to hear his story. And then the, the relationship that he built with Mar Maradona, which is also kind of unbelievable. Like, really? I, I was waiting for him to say, yeah, also, you know, with the Cosmos, I'd go watch, I got Pele and, and then we were pen pals as, as well. And then I got his Jersey. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. And I, Heath, you also talked on it, uh, touched on it is a lot of the guys in that generation, they just have like anger mm. because they feel like forgotten. They feel like they aren't reaping any of the benefits. Cause people having... like Charlie are living in a mega mansion, uh, exactly. you know, overlooking his yacht and water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh it's good to see him uh positive and 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 still like interested in the game and, and giving back as well no uh, I'm, I'm excited to actually watch the upsl final four now i i maybe i was aware of it but didn't really know and now that we kind of have a somebody to cheer for right i mean then i think that's part of it you finally have an, a vested interest i'm very curious to see how his team does and i wish them the very best they haven't lost a game away from home all season so i'd like to think they're favorites i didn't want to jinx them or put any pressure on them but speaking about that let's get into the u.s open cup another one-off competition we had the first part of our final four last night orlando city went down 1-0 to the red bulls and came back and scored five goals unanswered 
and they had a terrific second half in particular, and they get to host the final on September 7th. That is a big deal for that club. Both of those clubs, New York and Orlando, have never won an Open Cup before. New York had been to a final, but had lost in 2017 to my Kansas City Wizards, Sporting Kansas City. Sporting Kansas City went to Sacramento last night. I was there for the game, and Kansas City had plenty of opportunities, but uh, their penchant this season is not to finish those opportunities, and that reared its head once again. Sac Republic, very uh, heroic defending, good goalkeeping, made all the right saves, and did what they had to do. Ended up winning in penalties uh, 5-4. There was only one miss. Graham Zussi missed for, for Sporting Kansas City. And Sac Republic booked their ticket. The first non-MLS club to be in the final since 2008. So both home teams did the business. I believe I got that right, Charlie. Or excuse me, Heath, because you came on and said that you had... Who'd you have? You had somebody else. Yeah, I had I had uh, New York and, and Sacramento going through. Uh, and for a brief missed. period, I was big, right, Jimmy. Big miss. For a brief period, <laughs> period I, I was right. So, but look, I, I mean, I, it's it's an incredible thing. And while we are all MLS alum, I love a disruption to uh, a system. And I and I really do hope that uh, while I think it would be great for for Orlando and their history, uh, young history as a, I guess, not that young of a history of a club now for Major League Soccer uh, age, but... I, I want. I'm all in on Sacramento, Jimmy. You and I need to figure out a way to get on that that charter plane uh, to the East Coast when that game happens. You know, or Orlando. I'll be there. So you, you're gonna get, go. you're gonna be there. Okay, yeah, listen. There. So so Todd Donovan, who we had on the show last week, and and uh, is a friend of ours, and we played with and against him for many years. He's the president of Sac Republic. He he got me amazing tickets last night, and uh, I think we could talk our way into that. I, 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 would, I think we can talk about some seats. Yeah, we got to make that. I'll happen. also say this, uh, Jimmy, since you are the resident. Uh, Kansas City Wizards Sporting KC uh, alum. What hap- what happens now? What's next? What what does this mean for Peter Vermees? Because, you know, we all know Vermees is a legend. He's done it forever. He's helped win this club. He's put this club on the map, really. But it, it all it, there always comes a point where you need to change things up. You need to switch things. Is this the moment where you say they they looked kind of like lifeless? It was all like individuals. They had no heart. And sport, you know, being Kansas City, it was always about heart. That, mm-hmm. that was at the minimum, especially playing under Vermees. You know, maybe the game didn't go well, but you were given your heart. So if if they're lifeless, is basically what it was yesterday, is this the time to remove yourself as coach? Do you stay, <laughs> do you stay as sporting director? Like what, what happens? Just, uh... how, do you, how do you move forward? Because it, things need to change drastically. It's not just player selection. He's so entrenched in the system. And maybe that was on purpose. I know that at the end of his career, he at Kansas City, very similar to what we were just talking about, about former players having a bit of a chip on their shoulder. He got treated and discarded, you know, like a like a like a piece of cattle, right? He didn't get maybe the respect and and love on the way out. And and when we look back at all of our ends of our careers or any of our friends, it never really goes the way that you want. You're not gonna have you know, I always think about Mike, Michael Jordan ending his career on winning the NBA championship. And even he had to come back and like sour the end of his career by playing with the Washington Wizards. Like he even couldn't help himself. And he had a he had to figure out a way to like have the best ending of a career of all time to still uh, coming out of retirement to make sure he had a cra- crappy ending like the rest of us. <laughs> but but that's the thing. It's very but, but, rare, but you don't have to you don't have to end in that like mentality or, or you don't I, have I, to make other true. people end that if, way. Well, th- if so Peter Vermees left right now. I, I, if Peter Vermees left right now, it is a full-blown success story. And it oh, is really hard no to no turn question. it around and get back to 
like define what success is before you leave, right? Is it making the playoffs next year? Is it that, I mean, if anything, you, you can easily transition them into a consultant role, the old Manchester United thing. We just, you know, kind of ease somebody out or, or some sort of something to the club to continue it. Cause I think it's, a, he's an important part of that, but hand it off to the next, the next person that can take the reins that sees it differently. And anybody knows when you are deep inside of anything, whether it's creating content, Charlie writing articles, whatever, it is really hard to take yourself out of that and look at it holistically and see it from a perspective mm -hmm. that's sometimes much needed to provide some other things. You're deep on the inside and you know, you're continuing to go forward. It's like old military tactic type things of why, why the generals or whatever would always stay back and not be stuck in the middle of all those things to be able to sort of navigate that. And I think that's an important factor within the next, with the next generation of, of, of fan bases, results, success for the club, all that sort of stuff. I, I do. I should have started there. The whole thing will be successful. I was there during the lean years. I was there was with uh, at Arrowhead. Then we went to Community American Ballpark, the minor league baseball stadium. And the main driver to get the owners to understand what it would mean and what it would take to be considered a top club in this country was to build a world-class facility. Their stadium's amazing. To get a practice facility that is of the standard that's necessary. And, and really, instead of just being the ones that are kind of doing the status quo, actually pushing the owners to invest, to be the ones that are the benchmark. They're the ones that are setting the precedent of what this should look like. I mean, the guys that designed Kansas City's stadium went on to design Minnesota United's, which is another amazing stadium. Like they continue to, to be trendsetters as opposed to followers. And, and that's a credit to, a big credit to Peter Vermes for getting the owners to buy into that and, and to invest in their youth academy in a meaningful way, which produced Eric Palmer Brown was like their first big name. And all of a sudden sporting Kansas City's being linked with Juventus around the world and transfer gossip and all that type of stuff. And that's when the owners really started to, ah, okay, so we can, we can sell this guy for a couple million and that will fund our academy. And we get to be kind of part of this global conversation. I, I know there was a couple of those aha moments for the owners and then their buy-in was complete. So the owner Cliff Illig came out recently uh, maybe two weeks ago, saying we have Peter Vermes' back. He's not going anywhere. I get the sense that Vermes is going to have, next year will be his make or break year. This year, there's injuries to Polito and Kinda and some DPs that they were relying on. And the team just kind of st stifled an attack. They're not very dynamic. And so I think they become a little bit predictable. And then it puts so much pressure on the defense to have to be perfect every game. And their defense isn't good enough to be perfect every game. So, so that's where they're running into some issues. I think he's got one more season and then something has to give because if it continues in the same vein, then to your guys's point, like something has to change, but because he's been so entrenched, I think he's going to have to, he's got to fire himself. Ultimately. And I don't know if he has the wherewithal to your point, Heath, about kind of being so far in it to do that, but man, what he's in that the facility out there now, which they share with USA is unbelievable. I was there last week. I walked around going, I can't believe this is real. I walked in. They've got a couple of chefs on location. They're like, yeah, what do you want? You fill out this thing, they get it. And then once you're done, they fill you, they you fill out like this whole other sheet about what you want for lunch. It's it's personally made. Incredible. It's all it's it's unbelievable. I used to change out of the back of my trunk for practice, you know, when I first I, this is insane. So so yes, the game has gone uh and and developed very quickly, especially in Kansas City. And that's a credit to Peter Vermes. But then what? And this is what we're talking about. You got to rip off the bandit. You're going to have to break up with your longtime girlfriend. You got to get divorced from this very important marriage or whatever it is that you've had. And, and how do you do that? And, and when do you do that? And I think that's the big question mark that that's facing Kansas City right now. And it's going to face other clubs in the future. I mean, Ben Olsen was there with DC United not too long ago. And I don't know who wants to jump in here, but go for it. Anybody? Anything to add? 
there's just so many you know it was like the time yeah. when you asked paul calgary one question but it was two questions and it was like you know then, <laughs> i didn't know if it was gonna come uh, back around <laughs> you know what let's do this uh, it's gonna be a homegrown right it's gotta be like a homegrown yeah born in kansas city player right so if i'm thinking of players who could step in and be the head coach if peter vermees was to remove himself from that position right it's davy arno is one benny philharbor is one yourself possibly is one Thank you. um okay. josh wolf Josh Wolf, Kerry Savagnin, but I feel like that's he's the already same. on the staff. He's kind of more yeah, insane. So Paulo Nagamura, Nagamura, Ikopara. Yeah. He's he's assisting Benny Falhaber. Okay, so I mean that that to me looks like you you Maybe the got forward. some choices. Yeah, all right, mm-hmm. Josh. All right. Wolf. Okay, all right, Josh Wolf's a good one. He's been doing really well with Austin. Final thoughts, then. Heath, I'll come to you. Anything about Paul Calagiri? Any Open Cup stuff? Who do you think your early favorite is to win that one? I kind of lean in towards Orlando because they're hosting it and they haven't lost yet in yeah. this competition. Uh, and then, obviously, we have a big podcast again tomorrow. We're kicking off at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Do not miss it. We're going to break down some of the big news for certain players in the U.S. men's national team player pool and how they're performing. Maybe we'll even talk about Chris Richards going to Crystal Palace now that it has been officially noted. Uh, Heath, you go first. Final thoughts. No, just that again, Paul, Paul was great. And, and when I think about, we so often we talk about player development and accessibility to clubs and professional environments, which is great. Uh, but when you think beyond the ecosystem, which we would probably call, you know, you have ECNL, but you'd probably call MLS, MLS academies, uh, MLS next pro, like, you know, that sort of ecosystem. It's good to know that there's people that are educated and dedicating their time to, to, to other things. And that's going to have to happen. Like, a thousand fold if we ever actually want to win a world cup, because you're going to need better coaches in more locations and not just through a traditional pipelines that are going to develop those. So yeah, I'm really excited about uh, the future of what that looks like, knowing that there's people like Paul that are mentoring others, both at a local and national level. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see kind of how UPSL continues to integrate with the rest of the pyramid ultimately. Cause I think what we've seen Charlie is that there are, and if you want to bake this into your final thoughts, it's, it doesn't always feel like everybody's rowing the, the, the boat in the same direction. So hopefully Paul, with his attitude and his positivity, can help met, maybe mend some of those fences so we can continue to do that. No, you can just say my final thought for me. It's fine. <laughs> That's not what you were going to say. You weren't going to say that. Oh, Charlie, this has been fun, man. I, like, a little attack on Jimmy once in a while from, from both uh, angles. Yeah. It's, it's a solid it, it, one, you know. You got it. It's got to go around, you know. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, everybody. Then awesome. fine. Do you want a final thought? No final thought for <laughs> no Charlie. Final thought. Off. Let's this go tomorrow. Uh, uh, this is the end of In Soccer We Trust. Thank you for listening and watching. As always, continue to hit like and subscribe. Drop us five-star reviews anywhere you get the chance. And, of course, vote for us at the Podcast Awards. Podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up. And make that happen. Go to sports. Go to In Soccer We Trust. And give us another trophy in our cabinet. We appreciate you guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.